Hello, thank you for joining us. My name is David Malone. And my name's Ian Stroud. This is Hyperland. Um, on the podcast, we've got two former members of the Israeli Armed Forces. One is Yonatan Shapira and the other Jonathan Sugarman, who some of you will know because in the later part of his life, Jonathan also became Ireland's most famous and important whistleblower in the financial crisis. It's safe to say Jonathan has led anything but a quiet life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, interestingly, both Jonathan and Jonathan, they both grew up in the same Tel Aviv suburb where the Israeli, the higher command of the Israeli armed forces generally live. And when they met each other later in life, um, when they realized they were both pro-Palestinian activists and had come to some serious questions about Israel's military activities, they suddenly realized they had this background in common. Yonatan became a captain in the Israeli Air Force. He was a Black Hawk pilot. And Jonathan also served in the Israeli military. He programmed missions for uh, F-16 bombing missions. Um, I think it's fair to say they both have been on a long and very difficult journey where they'd come to question what they were perhaps told when they first were called up and have had to reevaluate what they thought about what they were asked to do. Yonatan, um, in 2003, famously organized a petition by a big group of pilots who said that we are just not going to kill Palestinians anymore. He's done a lot of other notable things. And Jonathan has been a, a vociferous and outspoken activist, pro-Palestinian activist for, well, certainly for the 20 years I've known him. Thank you both for um, talking to us this evening and welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jonathan, do you want to, do you want to start? Okay. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me and, uh, Thanks for uh, Jonathan, Jonathan uh, Sugarman for the introduction. Whenever I will say uh, Jonathan, I actually mean Jonathan because in Hebrew, that's how our names uh, sound. Yeah. Uh, so it's basically the same. And I actually knew uh, Jonathan since I was uh, early on uh, in elementary school. His family was quite uh, a prominent one. Uh, I remember his father and his brothers uh, in the little synagogue they were always there uh dressed in a very uh, nice uh, suits and uh, praying and uh, uh i came from a much less uh, religious family but uh, nevertheless i i was hanging out there yeah we basically grew up four minutes uh walk five minutes walk from each other uh, and my mother was the biology teacher of uh, jonathan and uh <laughs> And I even remember that uh, one time I joined them because they were one year older than me, uh, his uh, class, and I joined them to this trip in the north. And uh, and Jonathan gave me his uh, binocular to watch some birds, and I, by mistake, dropped the case of the binocular to the swamp. <laughs> so I still owe you a binocular case. Uh, I hope one day I can uh, pay it back. But uh, going back to your question, uh, we grew up in an extremely Zionist environment, very militaristic. The neighborhood where we lived was uh, actually built by mostly 
high commanders in the Israeli Air Force. It's called Ramat Sharon. It's just 20 minutes from Tel Aviv. Everyone in my school were either sons or daughters or pil- of pilots or navigators. And uh, your status in class was according to the, the rank of your father. You know, if your father was uh, like a squadron commander like me, you got a little bit more points. But another friend of mine in class, uh, his father was actually the Air Force commander. So I was below him. Yeah. Um, so this was kind of the environment where we grew up. And um, of course, all these um, ceremonies both in the Memorial Days, in the Holocaust Memorial Days, um, we were those kids that read the names of the fallen soldiers. I was uh, also a musician, so I used to play all these sad songs and and stand next to those, uh, you know, with a fire where mm-hmm. it burns for the whole night and day with all the names of the fallen soldiers. So uh, I think both of us really grew up in the heart of the heart of the hardcore Zionist militaristic. Today, I would call it a sect. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that, that was our religion in a way. Secular, mostly for me at least, mostly secular Jewish values, but ardent Zionism with a very complete narrative of uh, the history that is uh, totally neglecting anything that has to do with Palestinians. Uh, you know, I didn't know the name, the word Nakba, until uh, many, many decades later. Uh, we didn't learn. Tell us uh, what, what Nakba means for, for those who don't know. Nakba is the Arabic term for the catastrophe that happened to the Palestinians in 1948 when Israel was established. Uh, the war that uh, we grew up as the War of Independence was actually the Nakba of the Palestinians, where around 500 uh, villages and towns were destroyed and uh, seven, 800,000 Palestinians were expelled from uh, their their homes. And uh, the country that we grew up in was established. Most of the towns and uh, cities are sitting on the remains of demolished villages. Sometimes the houses are still there and they were taken and turn into uh, houses for uh, for Jewish families. But all this thing was totally, totally neglected from our childhood. And therefore, I grew up with the belief that uh, I'm going to be the best soldier in the Israeli military. I didn't have any doubt that I need to join the military. My only doubt was whether I should go and serve in the Air Force, like my father. He was a fighter pilot and a squadron commander. Or I will go to serve in the Sayeret Matkal, which is the like the most elite commando unit, like my elder brother, that was uh, already a soldier there. So uh, no doubts whether to go to the military, but uh, just where I can excel more, where I can be the best uh, soldier and later commander. And if there are problems, you know, uh, because we were kind of Zionist lefties, socialists, wanting peace and all this kind of uh, uh, talk, at least. Uh, so if there are some problems here and there, we will fix it by climbing as high as possible in the military and uh, and fixing the problems from inside. And that's how I joined. It was uh, 19, 
90, when mm-hmm. I, uh, 1991, when I joined the Israeli Air Force. Jonathan, is that largely the same for you or? Largely the same for me. Uh, firstly, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me along for this chat as well. I, um, I'd only add to Jonathan's description of background by saying that in the case of my home and my upbringing, um, we were definitely not secular. And um, Jonathan, yep, Jonathan remembers me from the synagogue because we attended the, the, the synagogue religiously on a, a Friday evening and a Saturday. Um, so the Zionism that I grew up with was a very right-wing Zionism and very much um, tied in to all of our religious practices. So when we blessed the wine and blessed the breads on a Friday night around the family dining table, uh, we would also, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a standard prayer to welcome the Sabbath and you thank God for having chosen us, the Jewish people, as his people, etc., etc. So, in a way, it was a double whammy. It wasn't just everything Jonathan described. On top of it, it was a very heavy religious mindset. It sounds as if it was very certain for both of you. And reading out the names of fallen soldiers, and some of them were the fathers of kids in our school, in our class. Going back to Jonathan's uh, rating uh, reference, you know, and if your father had been killed in a war, then you were certainly a hero. You know, it's, 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 to a certain extent, it's obscene, actually. I mean, we're all seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids, and yet we're all so aware of, you know, what has your family done to save this country and build this country? etc etc and in my family it's laden with the content of the bible so you know moses was there and then he came along and then there was king david and etc etc and on on uh, the eve of the uh, fast that we have during the summer to commemorate the destruction of i think it's the first temple i hope i'm not wrong uh, my father would get us kids in the car and we'd drive to Jerusalem to the Wailing Wall at one o'clock in the morning and say our prayers and make sure we fasted the whole way. So it was all, there was nothing light about any of this. And then these ceremonies that Jonathan speak of were then compounded, obviously, by everything to do with the Holocaust. So every year around Holocaust Memorial Day, we would still be of a generation who had grandparents, some of us, with numbers that were tattooed concentration camps. How was the, the, the Holocaust tied into the sort of the ongoing militarism, though? Did those, did those two things just sort of coexist, or were they brought into intimate contact? Well, it's not very fashionable to say so anymore, not even with Zionism, but there was a sentiment, and... Of course, by the 70s and 80s, when we grew up, people pretended that never happened, of, in a way, 
the Jews of Europe were at fault because they weren't strong and muscly and fighters, and we were going to be the opposite. Uh, I, um, I can add that for me, from a very early age, I remember maybe even second grade, you know, I was seven years old, I felt that I know about the Holocaust and I have the responsibility to grow up and tell it to the next generations. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I felt that the kids in my class are not aware enough of what happened. And therefore, my responsibility as a good student that listened to the teacher and I, you know, I grew up with this admiration both to my parents and to my teachers and to the whole system. And I felt that it's my responsibility. Me, Jonathan, I have to hold this tradition and this story of what happened to our people in the Holocaust. And therefore, when in, uh, I think it was 11th grade, when we were like 16, 17, uh, we went to this trip with a school to... Poland to, you know, uh, one week with the five concentration camps. And uh, my job was uh, as the klezmer, the musician, I had to play the same Holocaust songs in every ceremony that we did in every, each one of the, you know, Maidanek, Auschwitz and everything. And I remember that I think in Maidanek, uh, as a child, we were, standing there and doing one of the ceremonies and i remember those the piles of uh of uh shoes and mm. uh, looking at that and and then there is like a big pile of uh, ashes that we know that it's from the crematoriums and i was standing there and feeling this huge huge enormous sense of pride that my father is a top strong squadron commander in the Israeli Air Force, and I'm going to follow him and become a defender of uh, Israel, of the Jewish people, so the Holocaust will never happen again. And on top of all this, my name, Jonathan, is actually named after Yente, my uh, grandfather's mother that was killed in uh, uh, Treblinka in Poland. So it was like I was marinated in this uh, Holocaust uh, upbringing very deeply. You know, it was all the horror of the Holocaust. And then because of the religious background I grew up in, you know, it was we had to go through the scroll that describes Jerusalem being besieged. Uh, the scroll is called the Scroll of Eicha and it describes how people ended up eating human flesh in order to resist. But it, it was all so, you know, this is, we've fought for hundreds and, you know, thousands of years at this stage to be Jews and to be, and it was, well, our duty to be strong and powerful and make sure that nobody besieges us again and nobody sends us to any more concentration camps. The whole narrative 
to do with, for example, geography. There's some dispute about whether or not Golda Meir, the Israel's first and only uh, female prime minister, said, we were a people with no land that came to a land with no people. Now, she might have said it, she might have not, but that was definitely the spirit between which we were taught geography. And I remember being in second grade, having been taught about how we, the Zionists, um, dried the swamps north of the Sea of Galilee, and that um, one of the heroes of that period had said on his deathbed, it is good to die for our country. And then I was assigned together with a couple of other kids to make this enormous poster for one of the walls of the classroom in bright red, saying, it is good to die for your country, for our country. And this is at six and seven years old. I honestly have to say that it was some kind of a fantasy to die for your country. I remember like uh, watching these uh, programs on TV about the fallen soldiers from uh, 48 and, uh, and others. And I remember watching this guy that died and the whole program was about him and how um, he was such a determined and um, dedicated commander in the Palmach and that in the holidays, he would get his violin from the bag and play to everyone and uh, be the center of, uh, you know, the feasts and stuff. And I, I remember thinking, oh, he also played the violin. I'm also playing the violin. I can just, you know, die and be like him or like, I, it was like total identification uh, with the country and with those heroes. Uh, but nevertheless, at least for me, it was very, very happy upbringing. It wasn't something sad. It was like full, full of meaning, full of uh, of stories, of history, of traditions, of friendship, of excitement and admiration. But it wasn't necessarily for me. Uh, it wasn't sad at all. I was... I was really uh, happy and proud, and I remember that um, I knew that there are some problems in in the country because I was uh, brought to to be kind of the Labour Party style uh, uh, politics, like you know my mother at least, and um, and I knew that Israel is a great democracy, not like all the other countries around, and uh, and if I want to fix those problems here and there. I need to be, you know, as high as possible in the system. But I do remember like in uh, fourth grade, I was 10 years old and we learned in the, in the Bible class uh, about the, um, the Israelites coming from Egypt and conquering uh, Canaan, you know, yeah. conquering Palestine and, uh, and how they had to fight and kill and uh, take over. And I remember uh, that suddenly it felt a little strange and I had this strange feeling and I decided just to ask the teacher about it. And I kind of prepared this question uh, in advance and I said, okay, tomorrow in Bible class, I will ask this question. I think it's a smart one. Let's see what will she say. And I raised my hand and uh, she said, yes, Jonathan, what do you want to ask? And I asked, uh, 
how is it possible that they just come and take over the land from all those uh, different nations that live there and kill them and kill the animals and uh, like uh, all these horror stories what what kind of rights do they have to do that and I felt kind of smart and uh, you know to to challenge her and then she looked at me and she was a secular Jewish Israeli woman married to one of the highest uh, commanders in the Israeli Air Force and she thought about it for a second and she said well in the Bible according to the Bible all the land belongs to God and God decided to give it to the Israelites and it was such a short and clear-cut answer and I was just shocked and not satisfied by that's how the story ended <laughs> that's how this question ended and the next time I think about this question will be when I'm 27 years old starting to realize that I'm part of a terrorist organization and starting to think of maybe doing something else okay well let's jump to that I mean you said it was all very happy did that happiness continue as you began your national service so uh, for me i uh, decided uh, to try to go to the pilot course in the air force and uh, i was very happy that i managed to pass the test and it was really my dream like it was uh, something that i i really wanted with every every bit of my heart uh, i was a bit disappointed when uh, in the middle i was shifted from uh, a fighter jet pilot to a helicopter pilot but uh, then I became uh, a rescue pilot that uh, fly uh, those Bell helicopters later on Blackhawks and stuff and uh, and in a way it suited me very very perfectly because uh, I was always this kind of vegetarian pro-peace lefty guy <laughs> uh, at least in, in my own view, that's how I perceive myself. So I thought, okay, um, my job will, will be to, to bring uh, people to the hospital, to risk my life, to rescue people, to fly those uh, special forces uh, into uh, enemy territories. And it was, it was quite an exciting service, I, I have to say. The, the removal uh, between my actual job to the job of my friends and other pilots in other squadrons where I didn't have to actually drop any bomb or shoot anyone made it easier for me to tell myself the story that I just uh, described yeah. that I'm you know I'm a good guy I, I rescue the life of people I sometimes bring special forces because they have to come and do something important uh, that was the story I told myself and slowly slowly like a big wall crumbled uh, cracks came about and uh, at some point it all uh, collapsed in a, in a very 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 uh, in a kind of a mental crisis that like everything shattered like i i couldn't i couldn't take it anymore was that the same for you as well jonathan i suppose it, the same but somewhat different insofar as a tremendous sense of duty and destiny. You know, it all tied in. So whether it was the Bible lessons of our forefathers to 
the prayers over the wine and the bread and thanking God for choosing us over other people. A typical Israeli boy of our age would his hand, would have his life planned out at, until the age of 21. 21 is the first time you actually get to think of what it is you want to do with your life because you go from high school straight into the military service. The alternative is jail because it's conscription. Uh, maybe some of the listeners wouldn't be aware of the fact that the conscription is the conscription is for both men and women. You know, so there was no room for any doubt or any second thoughts. In fact, um, I'd hurt my back during the basic training, and as a later stage was discharged from the army on the proviso that if my back improved, I'd be called back in for service unless I chose to volunteer just so that I could continue my three-year service, which is what I chose to do. And some of that choice was because I didn't want to be seen on the streets of our suburb because all of the kids of our age were in uniform and doing their duty. Yeah. So I would have been ashamed seeing, being seen going to the cinema in the middle of the week sort of thing. So what did you end up doing, Jonathan? I spent most of my three years uh, positioned in a F-16 um, bombing, uh, an F-16 squadron uh, whose main mission was bombing. My daily role would entail receiving instructions from Air Force High Command as to what the targets were that we were to attack. And we would pull out the relevant maps and start calculating speeds, altitudes, directions, while someone else calculated full fuel consumption and what type of bombs were assigned by the Air Force chiefs to be loaded onto these planes. And every pilot before leaving the squadron would be given a disc from me that would then be loaded onto the F-16's computer. And together with an information pack that included satellite images of the targets. And we speak as the genocide in Gaza continues. These information packs that I would hand out to each and every pilot would include satellite images of neighborhoods, of public buildings, anything really. And um, I was the one who did the calculations of how many seconds do you fly in which direction and when do you drop the bomb. And they would say things as they were walking out and they hand them each their disc. They'd say, well, if I get shot down by an anti-missile aircraft, that's your fault. Um, so, you know, age 1920, I'd have a young pilot of 28, 29 years old who would say, well, if I don't come back, you'll tell my, my children why I didn't come back. 
So, you know, my, my concern was for the welfare of this hero, not for the welfare of the innocent people he was about to kill. I saw them as targets on an American satellite image of this neighborhood, of this encampment or whatever it was. And then when every pilot returned, he would give me a video cassette, which would have recorded the entire flight. And then for the next day's debriefing, I would have edited um, everybody's flight footage where I would show how heroically we, each and every one of our pilots bombed the different places. So as as Jonathan was sort of saying that he got to a stage where he was hit with a crumbling wall. When do you think the same thing occurred to you that it sounds prosaic, but it's true. Um, probably seven or eight years after I'd left the army, sitting in a pub in Dublin, and someone said to me, "So what did you do in the army?" And something clicked, something until then somehow in a very strange way in my mind, I had never made the connection between all these targets I'd marked off a satellite image and what the footage looked like on CNN the next day. Yeah. I didn't realize that sounds really stupid, but I didn't realize the connection between the two. And that was, you know, and then I remember sitting in, in a group of people and a good few guys older than me said, well, I wish our kids would go to the army. It would teach them some discipline and, you know, don't you think so? Didn't it do you good? And I just froze. I just froze. I, I had never somehow I'd managed never to connect the two. So, Jonathan, how, how did that affect you when, again, with the crumbling wall? Um, it is a long story, and this story has marks of different points where now I can set some kind of example of how the process happened, but it was a graduate process of uh, of me opening my eyes. Uh, I can give you some anecdotes. I don't think I can tell it uh, thoroughly because it's just uh, it's a life uh, story of several years, mostly of the Second Intifada, uh, 2000, 2001-2002 that happened parallel to uh, me hearing stories from my brothers that were ground soldiers telling me what's going on in Gaza and the West Bank, and me slowly realizing what's going on around me. One story, I was chosen to, to be taken to this, uh, to be one of the pilots that will be like this uh, team that will go to the United States and get 
special training on uh, Black Hawk helicopters in in the U.S. Uh, Army base in somewhere in Alabama, and then come back to Israel and to my squadron and help teach the other pilots on these uh, new helicopters that uh, Israel got from the U.S. And somehow the the guy that I mostly was friend with and felt something in common was this German pilot that was also in some training course there. His name was uh, Hulger. And uh, we were we became good friends, listening to music together, sitting in the evenings uh, in the barracks of the officers in the in the base there in Alabama. And uh, I guess we we had a lot in common. It was nice and easy. And one night he felt uh, comfortable enough to tell me about his uh, grandfather. And uh, he was saying that uh, his father, his grandfather was a commander of a big uh, brigade, I think, in the Wehrmacht in the Second World War. And he inherited all his uh, journal or his diary from the war. And it was books and books and books. And I guess he recently got them and he read everything. And um, for me as a Jew, you know, with all the Holocaust thing that we just uh, talked about, I was mesmerized and and listened to him eagerly. And he described how his grandfather was, um, was very much against the Nazis. Uh, from from the diary, from everything he wrote, he was really, really against the Nazis. He thought that they are bad, they are stupid, they are bad for for Germany, bad for the world. Uh, but nevertheless, he didn't have a choice uh, because he was in his position in the Wehrmacht. Um, of course, when when I heard Hulger defending his grandfather, saying that he didn't have a choice. I said, what do you mean? He was supposed to refuse. He was supposed to refuse to be part of this horrific crime that the Nazis did. Yeah. What do you mean he didn't have a choice? And Hulger was a bit puzzled a bit uh, in the beginning. And then he said, uh, you know, if he if he did something against, you know, the military, uh, it, it would put in risk him, his life, and the life of all his brigade. He, he just didn't have a choice. And I kept on going and describing how, you know, maybe he actually, his grandfather was the one that came into the village of my grandparents and uh, whatever, and killed all their family. And uh, and it, it became very, very, very high tension. And uh, I was very angry and upset. And it went on and on and on, me demanding that, he will say that his grandfather should have refused and uh, he's saying that he didn't have a choice. And and then at some point, Urgel said, yeah, but what about you? Didn't you hear about this um, helicopter that shot a missile into this bus and killed the five students, five Palestinian students next to somewhere in the West Bank? And I said, what? I was shocked that he dare to even mention you know israel in this context you know yeah i was shocked that he even dared to think that he will now pose this question to me how dare you like 
even talk to me, you, German, <laughs> grandson of a Nazi Wehrmacht guy, how dare you? And I was, I was so upset. And I said, uh, you never, ever, ever dare to compare. Uh, and what's happening in Israel is totally different. And uh, I am against occupation. I'm against the settlements. And uh, I'm all for peace. But uh, Israel is doing everything they can. And, and then, of course, I said uh, the most important sentence, the Israeli military and the Israeli Air Force is the most moral military in the world me that's what i said and i shouted it of course uh, but i ended this arguing this fight with uh, saying when i go back after we finish the course if i find out that the air force in which i serve in proudly is on purpose killing civilians if it's not true. It doesn't happen at all, I can guarantee you. But if I find out in the future that the Air Force I serve in is killing civilians on purpose, I will not be like your grandfather and I will refuse. I finished the course. I came back to Israel and I found out that I have to refuse. And I used to say that, you know, I made a promise to a grandson of a Nazi commander that if I find out that the Air Force in which I serve in is killing civilians on purpose, I will not be like this Nazi commander who hated the Nazis. Um, many, th many other things happen along this yeah. time, this but uh, that was one of these things that um, when I started finding out about all these bombardments that uh, my friend in other squadrons were doing and how actually there was no other way to look at it but killing civilians when you know in advance that you're going to kill them. Uh, I didn't have any choice. Well... Those same squadrons that Jonathan speaks of and I was part of, the pilot's progress within the ranks depended on how well he performed in these bombing missions. So it was a matter of pride of, you know, look how well I got the mission accomplished. And that's how these pilots who when I think of today as basically children in their late twenties become deputy squadron commanders and they think they're God and they're f flying jets which once they're laden with weapons are worth about sixty million dollars apiece. So they think themselves as demigods, I suppose. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the video I edited for the morning debriefing was for everybody to clap on each other's shoulders and say, well done, well done, you, you know, you bombed the living daylights out of them, you, you know, you got it right. Or maybe 
you didn't get it right and you should do better. So not much room for humanity in all of it, or second thoughts. And at that time, Jonathan, you, you, you made, when you first told the story, you make it sound as if during that time, you really didn't have second thoughts. You weren't saying, hey, we're bombing people, that somehow you'd managed to seal that away in a separate part of your mind and that, that you really didn't, that the connection wasn't made until that night in Ireland. Was it as clean cut as that for you or looking back? So I remember the exact pub in Dublin where it happened and being unable to move or speak or just frozen, utterly frozen. But um, again, going with this line which Israel is using yet again during this genocide, we are the most, the, the army, the military with the highest morals in the world. You know, we wouldn't hurt a child and we wouldn't, you know, these are um, unintended casualties. These are unintended. Well, if you're going to blow up an entire neighborhood in the middle of the night, guess what? There will be women and children sleeping there. But we grow up with such, and this is where I use the word religious again, su such a religious conviction. I did have cousins who lived in the settlements, in the illegal settlements on the West Bank. It was all about us Jews reoccupying our forefathers' land 2,000 years later. We'd come home and we were not giving up our home, and we were going to be the top professionals at what we do. They held these high moral values that Jonathan speaks of. So how could I possibly doubt that this is a legitimate target? It, it, it never occurred to me that, you know, the next day there would be a headline like there was today about deputy head of Hamas being killed in Beirut. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that an entire neighborhood might have been murdered along while, while this went on. Sorry, this is a bit difficult for me. Um, You know, I like there would be it would be in the news the next day saying, "Oh, so and so head of so and so Palestinian resistance movement has been killed in a brilliant air force operation by our great forces last night." And um, you know, there was I part of yeah this great operation. We can uh, say that it's exactly. Like today, they would say, in order to kill one of the high commanders of the Israeli Air Force that lived where both of us grew up, they took down this neighborhood. So basically, what we are trying to say that we are realizing that these justifications are justifications to take down our childhood neighborhood. Because all our fathers and our neighbors were high commanders, and according to these practices of the Israeli Air Force, we were all a legitimate collateral damage. And to think about the headquarter of the Israeli military and the Israeli Air Force being in the heart of Tel Aviv, about 100 meters from the biggest hospital of Tel Aviv, Ichilo, all surrounded by civilians, 
every time now during this genocide, we hear those justifications of the Israeli spokesperson. What they say in different words is that they're legitimizing killing all our families. Jonathan, are you saying that in some way when Hamas or somebody sends a, a, a rocket over um, and it lands in a, and, and, it, and it doesn't hit the house of one of the commanders of Israel's military, but lands nearby and kills someone else, they could justify it in the same way, saying, well, you know, that unfortunately there's collateral damage when we're trying to target the real mouth. They can use the same argument. I can just give uh, one one specific example of of a bombardment that was in the summer in 2002. The Israeli Air Force sent an F-16 uh, fighter jet with a pilot and navigator in the middle of the night to target the house of uh, Salah Shade, who was the head of the armed part of the of Hamas. They killed him with a one-ton bomb dropped from an F-16, together with 15 other people. He didn't just kill these 15 people and and nine children, and including a baby in his mom mother's womb. The next day, the Air Force commander said that uh, it was done in a perfectly way, and it was within the moral envelope, or something like that, of, uh, of the Israeli army. And uh, he even said that the pilots that did it and all the pilots of the Air Force should sleep well at night. Mm. And, and I think for me, and maybe a few others that I later managed to convince them to join me in this petition, it was like the last piece of puzzle that comes down from the sky and then you see the picture. Yeah. And I saw it as a terror attack against all these babies and children. And in a way, I felt that this Zionist boy, this Jonathan, the Zionist boy that stand in those ceremonies and went to these places in Poland and was proud to be the Zionist boy died there in this, in this hole, in this bombardment. Yeah. And, uh, will never wake up again. Is it is it right to sort of say that you both had quite a sort of a epiphany at that point? I think I think it was it was kind of an epiphany, but uh, because it was built of many other pieces of events and moments, yeah, it was one of them and I remember uh just a few days after or a few weeks after there wasn't an officer in one of these squadrons, probably in the same role that uh, Jonathan had, yeah. who, who refused to pass the maps and information to the pilots. And it became well known everywhere. And it was talking about on the news, on the army radio. I don't know how they didn't censor it, but it was well known that there was an officer that was supposed to deliver the maps and the information for those fighter pilots before they go to murder these kids. He refused to give them the maps and was, uh, I think, kicked out from the military or was punished by going to jail or something like that. And when I heard it, 
it was one of these moments that I realized, yeah, that's what we have to do. Stop. Yeah. Even if I, even it's, even if it's not me, even if I just prepare those maps, even if I, as a rescue pilot, just stand by to rescue this pilot when he go to bomb these uh, civilians, even I'm just in my reserve duty and I'm not even serving there, I have a role. And that moment where, where I realized that this joy of flying this big Black Hawk helicopter machine, it's, it's so exciting. It gives you this huge omnipotent, uh, how do you say it? Omnipotent feeling. Yeah. This moment of uh, taking off in a field full of flowers that you can see that everything is just like laying sideways and you're just going up vertically to the sky. This joy, this feeling of power that you have on your left hand when you pull this collective, this this stick in the helicopter that gives you this enormous sense of uh, oh. mighty power. And to connect this to the other feelings of being discussed by what the organization that I serving is doing and realizing that my joy is is connected to to the murdering to terror attacks on, against civilians was the hardest part realizing that only if i find the 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 courage to to refuse to do that mm -hmm. only then i can actually do something in order to affect this ongoing madness but it's it's not just for me. That was the hardest part. Yeah, it's it's not just stopping and not handing over those details. It's kind of the way the, the picture you've painted is, I suppose, the culture of the military of getting as high as you can within the air force or in the army, and that is a status. It, it's actually turning around and sort of saying that's wrong. Yes. Yeah. So the kids that it's have first of all. First of all, you have to refuse to be part of a terrorist action, terrorist organization, terroristic system. Yeah. Only then come and speak and protest and go to politics or whatever you want. But the first step is to stop being part of a communal gang rape or a communal terror practices or communal genocide. Yeah. Jonathan? Uh, this slogan of never again, um, one of the things that I find so horrific is that ultimately the education system that we came out of, be it our formal schooling or the upbringing at home that we received, was this, the Holocaust in particular, should never happen again to us. Mm -hmm. It wasn't anything to do with man's inhumanity to man. It was all about us Jews. You were sort of saying earlier that, 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 that you were seen as weak and therefore the defense of that has become as aggressive as you can become. 
It's it's more than that, Ian. It's we are superior. Right, okay. And we walk around with this feeling of superiority. And so, you know, by what we've by described by now, um, you can understand that we both come from a pretty comfortable middle-class upbringing. And I remember my mother saying once that um, she was toying with the idea that perhaps we should uh, move to go and live in Jerusalem. And I said to my mom, well, where would we go and live in Jerusalem? You know, Jerusalem is a magnificent city of thousands of years. And Oh, she said, I'd love to have one of those old Arab houses. But there was never a discussion of like, how come the Arabs are not living there? Yeah. Like, well, there was never, I never heard the word Nakba until I was well and truly ensconced in my Irish life. Yeah. I could tell you everything about, not everything, but a lot about the Shoah, the Holocaust, the, the gas chambers, the, but it took me years to realize that you know, this was a flippant comment my mother made about, oh, well, I'd love one of those big Arab houses. Yeah. There was, there was no discussion about there are people with keys to those houses living in refugee camps less than an hour's drive away with no water and no electricity. They didn't just pack up and leave. Given what's going on now, what is your... Where have you got to in this this long journey that you've both been on? How do you see what's going on in Israel and Gaza now? It's the ultimate. It's an understatement to say that it's a moral bankruptcy of Zionism. I grew up in a very right-wing home where my mom is South African, South Africa, South African South Africa's apartheid was not con condemned but applauded, and so was Zionism and its efforts to build our Jewish homeland. What we are witnessing now is the absolute collapse of an ideology called Zionism that was racist to begin with. And one of the things we are taught is it's for the grace of King George V who gave us a homeland because we were being persecuted everywhere mm -hmm. and combined with this other saying of we're, we were a people with no land that came to a land with no people, what we're witnessing now was the inevitable result. And the reason I agreed, because this is not an easy conversation for me to have to the reason I agreed to have this conversation is because I have no doubt that although the technology must have changed since I did my programming they're not no longer using rulers and pencils to calculate yeah. out some directions but ultimately as we speak there are Yonathans and Yonathans doing the very same thing all over again yeah on a massive scale and, and I'm not saying this in my defense, because I, I'm not quite sure I have a defense, but later on, 
it was like how did how how did nobody say no how did how did you know i remember the boycott of south africa which ultimately led to the collapse of apartheid how come there was no boycott of israel i think i think in your defense jonathan it is the activity that you you been pursuing and, and the same with you Jonathan with the flotillas that you've been doing around Gaza in in relation to that one of the flotillas Jonathan was involved with there was a holocaust survivor on board one of those ships the irony of a holocaust survivor being arrested by the Israeli navy for trying to bring in food and medicine yeah to the ghetto of Gaza yeah. It's just, where do you go from there? Irony. Jonathan? Um, I guess it's obvious for everyone to the point I want to make, but still everything that we were just describing to you, it's like little drops yeah. compared to the full-scale genocide of Gaza now mm -hmm. and the ethnic cleansing that happened in the West Bank. We are so, so, so far, far away from the level of killing and, and crimes that brought both of us to, to be what we are now that I just don't know how to wrap my, my mind around that thing that is the things that affected me and made me decide to refuse and to organize this, this group of pilots that will refuse 20 years ago are just like nothing, nothing, yeah. nothing compared to the thousands and thousands and thousands of children that are now dead and and thousands well, of families laying under the rubbles and, and, and hospitals that are bombed and, and the world that is totally, totally silent. It's, it just, um, it, it just like your mind just doesn't know how to, how to sustain it. And, and I, I remember in the last years, I, I tried to keep ongoing communication with everyone in the Israeli society that is willing to be in contact with me. Yeah. Although I was labeled as a traitor in some places, in some other places, uh, it was just, you know, um, radical lefty in some places. Uh, they, they said that I had some mental problem and, but I tried to keep in touch with whoever is willing because of my fantasy or wish that I can still affect people yeah. that I can still help people realize what, uh, what, uh, Jonathan and me realized, uh, that I can still affect the situation and can be in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle and, and not just find solutions for my own, uh, my own uh, self. But I remember how I tried to explain it to some of these people that do not share our convictions in Israel. And I said that, you know, 
I feel that I understand how the Holocaust happened, how it was possible to to massacre and to burn so many of our people. Now I know it's possible. It's so, so possible and majority of people we let it happen and now as we speak they let it happen and it's never gonna be the same nothing 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 is going to be the same there is no way back now and what we were arguing all these years on different solutions and different uh, perspectives and different ways nothing nothing will ever be the same after this kind of genocide not just with with the fact that israel is committing a genocide but also the fact that this genocide is being televised or or yeah 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 seen yeah yeah all the time through all these platforms and still those who enable that those who finance it those who legitimize it are still there letting it happen and supporting it supposedly and yeah, in silence as well yeah you know even i i am now speaking to you from uh, norway i live in norway now mm-hmm. norway has this uh, image or self image they like to see themselves as as a peaceful loving country uh, the nobel peace prize is given maybe uh 10 minutes on the bicycle from from uh, where i live now yeah um and they give money to all these ngos and always want to be in the middle of uh, negotiations and peace talk and stuff norway is actually producing those parts of those f35 fighter jets of Lockheed Martin, the the American uh, yeah. weapon company, yeah. that are, as we speak, killing children in Gaza by a state-owned weapon company. There is numerous of, like, um, Norwegian state-owned weapon companies that are, through loopholes and through the United States, of course, sending weapons now israel can i ask you both a question um you've been on this journey you know each of you have described the moments when you suddenly saw that what you'd been taught as children wasn't true and the things you saw were there for other people to see so how have they not seen it is it a, a personal thing i mean ha- is it that the journey you've been on is just so personally um destructive because I mean, you and I, Jonathan, have been friends for a long time, and I know this is that that on a personal level, this has torn up your life in in significant ways. Is do people not want to take this journey for those reasons because it's just so unpleasant, or do they not want to take those reasons for more social reasons that they they just don't want to challenge the story that makes them comfortable when? When you when you try to talk to people and they don't agree, how, what goes through your mind to to so how on earth you understand them not agreeing with you? It would be fair to say that I was practically disowned by my family for my pro-Palestinian 
activism. And, but it took me a while to realize that if they were to stop for a minute and think of what it is that we're doing, they would be in the same moral conundrum of how on earth did I go and commit these atrocities in the name of what? Something called the Bible that says this is my land and not your land and therefore I can bomb a kindergarten. I want to to say something about about that. There are actually many people like us. Of course we are a minority of the minority, but there are thousands of soldiers of Israelis in different positions, in different background and level, academia, arts, military uh, veterans that realized and got to the same conclusions. Some of them made big fuss about it. Some of them uh, left the country and disappeared. What official Israel did with that is to try to silence it, minimize it, and label it as anti-Semite or self-haters uh, or um, crazy. Um, and treason. Yeah. But, um, but there were many groups of Israelis that since 48 try to shout and, and deliver this message. But obviously we were not successful. Maybe we managed to inspire a few people here and there. Maybe we managed to encourage and show solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters. Maybe we managed to help a little bit uh, organizations like uh, Jewish Voice for Peace in America that are doing amazing work, but overall we failed. We failed big time. Um, I personally was fascinated about this question of why it happened to me and not to Uri. Uri, my friend that I grew up with, who, who chose different. So in, I, I actually wrote a thesis in my university studies and I took these cases of those friends of mine whom I didn't manage to pull to my side and convince to sign this petition and, and stop their service. And, and I tried together at the time when we were still in communication together with them to try to come to the deep, to the, to those places where what was the difference between us and uh, there were many different answers but I think the bottom line is is the inability to see yourself in the other yeah empathy and and to feel empathy and one of the things that I remember the most is about this Uri whom I hope that one day will be in jail uh, when 
this genocide is over. Mm -hmm. I remember asking him, what do you feel when you go to the squadron and, and get a mission and go bomb someone? And he said that, uh, the word Chemla, I think it's compassion in English. Compassion. Compassion is something that I put in my locker when I change clothes and go on, you know, wear my flight suit. And then I become part of the machine and I have to believe in the system and do whatever I am asked. And then at the end of the day, I, I, I take it again. And, um, it's, it's what enable every, every Nazi, every American killer, every Israeli killer, and even every, uh, Hamas, uh, militant that, that, that killed civilians, uh, to differentiate between, you know, hugging his baby before he goes to work and, and killing another child. Yeah. Um, Duncan, you wanted to say something? Yes, that there's an Israeli rite of passage almost by which, um, Israeli is in particularly men rather than women, but women as well that as soon as practically as soon as they know when their um, departure date is from the army from military service they've walked a one-way ticket either to india or to latin america and so it's like oh well, well you know just get away from it all and but there are no statistics about how many people either commit suicide on these journeys or never come back because they just. Yeah. They were pilots who committed suicide. I know, uh, I know of some case. You, you, you make it sound as if you're King Canute trying to stop the tide coming in and it's an impossible task. But there are younger people coming through now that are refusing to join up. Is that not a, a, a seed at least? Does that give you some hope in what you're doing? Given everything that has transpired from the 7th of October this year, yeah, it's far too little and far too late. Yes, you, you both said that that nothing will be the same. That there's no there's no turning back. Um, do you, do you is that just despair speaking, or when you step back from it, do you really think that's true? I mean, do you think that the present government of Israel is leading its people into a place where that the state of Israel as it currently is just can't survive, either morally or physically, I don't know which. As far as I'm concerned, the state of Israel has no right to exist in its current form. But in its current form, okay. And until there's, um, as a South African citizen, I was there for 
dinner table conversations about there cannot be a South Africa without apartheid. And thank God for people like Nelson Mandela. Not saying South Africa is perfect, but when I see the South African rugby team made up of a multitude of backgrounds, I think to myself, God, you know, I would have been present at so many conversations as a teenager, as a child in South Africa of over my dead body, would there be any other than whites in the Springboks team? Yeah, yeah. Well, to hear that very team sing the national anthem in Zulu, in Afrikaans, and in English, <laughs> I, wish, I wish, I dearly wish I could tell you that within our generation, within our lifetime, there will be such a change, such an incredibly 180 degree change in Israeli society that will accept that the other is not the other, that the only way towards, the only way for us to live peacefully is by giving equal rights to all of its population. And I don't think that the Jewish population of the state of Israel is remotely close to that realization. I mean, you, you still have people talking about two-stage solution. It's a joke. Oh, how, 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 I mean, neither Jonathan nor I have, um, family going back as far as Palestinians living or having just been killed in Gaza who can prove that they've lived in Jerusalem for 20 generations. Yeah. And until we acknowledge the fact that they are our equals and they have every right to live in Jerusalem and Jaffa and wherever they choose in this little piece of land, there is no hold. Jonathan, what do you think? Going back to what you were mentioning, those uh, young people who refuse to, at least to the Israeli military, and choose to go to jail, it always encourages me and it always gives me hope. And in a way, I dedicated all the last 20 years to to mobilize kids like kids like them to to do what what these uh, heroes in in my eyes are doing yeah i in the last years i've been doing also parallel to my hardcore activism going on these boats to try to break the blockades on gaza and stuff like that i did also uh, different different kind of activism uh, like music concerts where I tell my story and I sing songs and I kind of try to softly um, touch the hearts of uh, people and and convince them or or affect them to to re-question you know uh, their their narrative and their convictions and when when few people are making this choice it's uh, it's 
very important for me, even if everything else in, in the reality is very sad and gloomy. But when it comes to the actual future of, of this land, I am sad to say that uh, that I, I just can't see any legitimacy to the current structure of the of the fascist and apartheid and genocidal state of Israel to to exist in that way. I'm not saying that all these millions of people have no rights to to live there and to and to be safe and secure. I'm just saying the structure of the Israeli Zionist state that got this carte blanche from the world to to wipe and totally destroy Gaza and kill those thousands and thousands and thousands of civilians and children. This this is a, an entity that has lost its legitimacy and and has to be replaced with something else. I don't know to give solutions now. I know that it will have to be uh, by pressure from outside. Yeah. And uh, I don't see this pressure coming, and it's not a very interesting maybe subject in this point, but uh, this this is my despair uh, at this moment. Jonathan, you, you said that, you know, that, that the rest of the world gave Israel a carte blanche. I mean, that this is... There's so much discussion about are the Israelis wrong, are the Palestinians wrong, and the one, but the discussion never turns back to the to the rest of the world. As you say, why has the rest of the world given Israel a cut blanche because we're trying to exercise our guilt for what happened in World War Two? That somehow Europe and America are saying, yeah. We somehow let this happen, or we knew that it was going on, and we, we, you know, we didn't exactly. Maybe people feel that somehow there's a guilt, and they're trying to get the Palestinians to 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 be the sacrificial lambs to expurgate our guilt. I mean, how else do you under? I think why has Europe given the not said anything? I think a. A lot of that is is what you just mentioned, but um, the other side of it is pure financial, military, um, arm trade, and uh, and other interests. This world, this capitalistic uh, structure of the world, with the U.S. at the moment as the superpower, uh, and all the changes happening. I think that's what sets the tone um and there is there is a lot of um financial war going on in the background of of this specific thing and we cannot ignore it so i think it's a combination of uh, of that uh, and and i can just add one thing like i'm just thinking about it as a country like germany that is one of the maybe most supporters of this genocide um in that case yes it's it's a combination of uh, of this guilt of the holocaust that they committed but 
uh, it's also I I recognize here maybe the same kind of racism that enabled Germany to support the genocide of Jews and gypsies and and all the victims in the Second World War that is now supporting the genocide in Gaza. They just shipped from supporting the killing of Jews to supporting of killing of Palestinians. If I may bring, bring in something to do with my banking past, um, I was working for a German bank at the time of the Second Gulf War, and Germany was very vociferous about the fact that it would not take part in this war that hadn't been sanctioned by the UN and was basically, you know, the UK and America going in after Saddam Hussein and with no mandate from the UN. So, as always, Germany took the moral high ground of, no, 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 we won't be part of this. But the German subsidiary that I worked for in Dublin happily financed the war effort. And when I saw the tickets coming through and who were the companies that we were financing, I thought a lot of, am I the only person who recognizes these names? Or yeah, maybe mention them. It will be interesting. Not now. I've made enough enemies for the moment. Thank you. I, 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 I was going to ask you a question. I don't know if it's a misplaced question or um, if you if you could go home, we want to. It's it's a it's a horrible thing not to be able to go home, and both of you were in some sense exiled. Jonathan, you you have been. Jonathan's told me you know when you were taken off flotilla, you were tortured, so you you can't go home. But do you? If you could, if somehow you could make Israel back to something you could live in, you do want to go home? Do you miss it? It's not accurate that I was, uh, you know, I, yeah, I was shot in my heart with a taser gun. It, it was, it was really not nice, but um, <laughs> but uh, no, but when you say that I was tortured, I'm thinking about people that stay in jail for a long time and being tortured, and and I am extremely, extremely privileged. In all the times that I've been uh, arrested, whether it's in the West Bank or on those uh, uh, four attempts to to break the blockade on Gaza, it was not nice. But I always knew that there are tons of lawyers in Israel and outside that are going to take care of me and uh, I'm not going to be one of those who disappear or even those uh, Turk activists on the Mavi Marmara that were shot uh, on uh, point blank in the middle of their forehead. So I, uh, I have to emphasize that, you know, with all the sacrifice that some people will say that I did, I, I I had. It's it's really the sacrifice of a very very privileged white Israeli Jew ex officer, even 
not like uh, Jonathan, with a family that supported me in a way. So um, it's, um, I don't know why, but it's important for me to kind of set it clear. The other thing about, uh, I, I was not forced to live in exile. Um, the circumstances brought me like to, to this position. I, I was fired from all the um, helicopter companies. I worked as a civilian. So it became uh, not easy to to live uh, there, and with uh, my partner at the time, we we didn't have much uh, choice, and we moved uh, outside. I always wanted to go back. I always wanted to be part of the struggle inside and to live together with my Palestinians and Israeli activist friends, the community there that I was part of and I'm still feeling part of is in a way my identity. Mm-hmm. It's my point of reference, my Palestinian friends living there and my Israeli friends who didn't uh, turn around like many others in the last uh, few months, but those who still stick to, to, to our beliefs are the core of my new identity in the last 20 years and it's uh, it what kept me uh, my kept my soul uh, integrated what made me possible to go through sometime tough times and deal with accusations and other things but but not feel alone yeah uh, so I always wanted to go back and to be there and whatever I do from outside to do from inside. But I had to say that after after the last, uh, after this genocide, something that I never felt before happened and, and mostly seeing close friends that were, I thought, to be part of our camp, yeah. our equal rights, one state, uh, you know, right of return, uh, supporting all the Palestinian struggle and uh, and being in full solidarity, seeing uh, some of these people, many of these people, turning around, broke something deep in my sense of belief or hope. Yeah. And, uh, and there is still a hope exists, go back home. And uh, I, I cannot be, I cannot, um, I cannot totally say that it doesn't exist, but, uh, I understand today in my, in my mind that it cannot happen. It, something there is so deeply broken. My last visit to Israel was over 15 years ago, I was scheduled to stay there for two weeks. I left after five days. I think I think both of your stories have certainly touched my heart. I don't know about you, David. Uh, mm. and, and going forward, Jonathan, apart from buying a, a, a new binoculars case for Jonathan... Um, what, what is, what is the next, next step for you both? 
I think, you know, poetically, maybe it's uh, it's for a reason that I lost this uh, binocular case because both of us, in a way, in some strange course of action, our life story brought us to the same vision to find uh, this ability to open our eyes and to to look uh, through the binocular and and see the reality in which we grew up in yeah and uh, this binocular case that is now somewhere deep in the swamp in <laughs> ahula valley in the galilee north of the sea of galilee is uh, maybe waiting to be found but we have to change things from the very very basic before for a very something fundamental at a very fundamental level i have to say in in a more optimistic way if it's possible that some some palestinian not even friends but just friends of friends or people that reached out through different channels uh contacted me in the last weeks uh reacting to some interviews and videos that were shared in different places and um uh, said that it gave them a lot of hope yeah um maybe you talk now i highly recommend reading Elon Papa's book about the uh, the ethnic cleansing of Israel Elon Papa is currently a, a professor at Exeter University and I also recommend reading a book by author a South African born but grew up in England woman by the name of Susan Nathan called and she titled her book the other side of Israel and she after her, her she went through a divorce in London and the kids were grown up and she decided to go and fulfill the Zionist dream and it's her book is a very candid description of the horrors she experienced when she realized what real Israel is but I mean, listening to you both, the, the thought I, I come away with is what you went through has, it's left its mark upon both of you. I've known Jonathan a long time, so I, I know that on the basis of many, many, many long conversations. And um, I hope I'm not being presumptuous, but I, I think I see the same marks upon you, Jonathan. And I can't help but sort of well, fear, I suppose, is the right word, that there'll be people just like you starting down that path. And that, that, that's that, inevitable. The, the state of Israel is not that's only murdering inevitable. Palestinian children, it's, it's, it's murdering the child. It's, it's, chew, yeah. it's chewing up and spitting its own. Yeah. There's no winning of that, is there? No. no, there's no part of that in which anyone wins anything. 
I think if you want uh, one image that can symbolize the path of the state of Israel is these three abducted, kidnapped Israelis that somehow managed to escape and were found somewhere in the rebels in one of the neighborhoods in Gaza. They wrote Hatzilu, help, in Hebrew. They made signs that they wrote with food remains, saying, we are three kidnapped, please uh, save us, don't shoot. They went outside, two of them were immediately shot to death while they have uh, stripped down to their underwear to show the soldiers that have nothing in their hands. One of them managed to escape to one of the buildings and for 15 minutes, a brigade commander of, or something like that, an Israeli commander, was trying to convince him, the last one of these three, to come out promising that they will not shoot him. And then eventually he came out and two other soldiers immediately shot him to death. This Israel, this is the state of Israel now, shooting and killing thousands of Palestinian civilians and its own people. I think the point David was was making, Yonatan, is that it is inevitable that with everything that is going on at the moment, there are young Yonatans who are facilitating this genocide, who will end with PTSD as I have, and with the difficulties you have had to deal with, and that's, you know, do, do is there a league of victims? I mean, my heart goes out to a million people ordered to evacuate in 24 hours from their own land, but at the same time, this is being done by 19 and 20 year olds who think they have a right to do this. And God help them the day they realize what they've done. Yeah. Listen, um, you, you, we made you relive all of this for two solid hours. Um, and, um, although people listening I'm only going to hear your voices. I've, I've been seeing your faces and I, you'd have to be made of stone not to see the effort that you've both gone through to talk to us. Um, and I, I really appreciate it. But thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. You gentlemen. Free Palestine. <laughs> this is why we are here. Yeah. We want to free Palestine and free the Israelis of being murderers and free everyone there. Well said. Thank you, Zales. Thank you.